is Bloomberg Surveillance. We expect the Fed to hike in September, even with the recent comments made by Fed officials bringing the possibility earlier. We still think September is more likely. The Fed has long considered June an open possibility, not foreclosed. I'm not saying that the Fed shouldn't raise it, but why don't you raise it, get ready for a big market correction, and then go your way and keep normalizing rates. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. He is the outlier, or at least he was the outlier in this hour. Boy, have Mike and I have been waiting for this discussion. Nariana Kachalakota, the University of Rochester, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed, uh, to join us here in a moment, and we could talk literally for three hours nonstop with a mathematician from Baltimore. No question um, uh, about that. We say good morning to all of you, Michael McKee and Tom Keen worldwide, as we go to this important interview uh, brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. Is your business ready to break through? See how the professionals at Cone Resnick can help guide your business forward. Find out more at ConeResnick.com, C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K. He um, is out of Baltimore and out of Chicago in math in Princeton at a very early age in math. And I would love to bring him in, but it's always more appropriate if Michael McKee <laughs> introduces our Fed presidents, governors, and indeed chair. Mike, you spoke recently with Lacker of Richmond. How is Kachal Lakota different from Lacker of Richmond? Uh, well, he's shorter. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't want to, uh, Pigeonhole people because views change, but uh, over the course of his time at the Fed, Ariana Kocha Lakota was uh, considered more dovish, uh, more willing to cut rates, certainly, than uh, Jeffrey Lacker, who is uh, on the hawkish end of the scale. But at this point, it's almost uh, somewhat beside the point uh, of where you are in the scale because we're looking at a Fed that seems to be somewhat united in the idea that they need to raise interest rates fairly soon. And it is all that is important to folks in the markets. And this morning on Bloomberg View, Mariana, you're writing that uh, th- th- there's a question about uh, about that, and uh, you call it an unhealthy obsession with the Fed for the markets. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me on. It's a real, uh, real pleasure to join you today. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think that this focus on the calendar day, on the exact date of the next move by the Fed, uh, really reveals that uh, markets and the public more broadly uh, are really grasping for information about what is driving Fed decision-making. Uh, it doesn't seem to be inflation. Inflation is uh, very uh, remains low, has been low for years. Um, expectations of, of inflation, forecasts for inflation are that it's going to remain low for the next three years. Um, and you look at longer-term inflation expectations measures uh, as measured by uh, – um, the tips bonds and, and uh, you just don't see uh, even those longer term inflation expectations have really drifted downwards. So the Fed's decisions to raise rates are not being driven by inflation. So what is driving it? And I think that is why there's so much fixation on these on the uh, on these issues of are we going to go in June or September, which economically should be totally meaningless, but matter beca- matter for markets, matter for prices, and matter ultimately for the economy because people 
see them as informative about the, what's driving Fed decision-making. Well, the Fed has been very, I mean, uh, just about everybody I know on the uh, Open Market Committee, in every speech they've made, has said, we're going to raise rates gradually. But in the context of what you're saying, the markets don't seem to believe that, or at least they haven't taken it on board. And I'm wondering why that is. Well, they say the Fed says two things. The Fed says they're going to raise rates gradually, and they say they're going to be um, um, data dependent. And uh, so both both things have to be true. Uh, are going to be uh, the latter has to be true in some sense. I should say that they're going to be data dependent. And the question is, what does that going to what, what data is influencing decision making? When the Fed uh, decided to go in December, what was the data they saw that made them do that? When they decided not to go in, in January or March, what was the data that made them decide to do that? I think that's it's very murky, I think, to markets and to the public. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Each, each decision point, each, each meeting in and of itself doesn't matter all that much. But every uh, decision you make yeah. provides a clue about what's shaping your, your decisions down the road. It is an honor to speak to you today. Uh, uh, to the McKenzie professor at Rochester, uh, given the moment of Stanley Fisher traveling to Columbia in honor of Michael Woodford, there is a body of theory, uh, uh, Professor Kachalakota, that it has a mathiness to it called DSGE, Dynamic Stochastic General Equilibrium Theory, and all our audience needs to know is it's a theoretical structure of math. Has that been destroyed? Is the outcome of 20 and 30 years of good thinking by you and others, has it been shaken to its foundations by what we've seen in the recent months and years? Uh, you know, I think that's a, a great question, and it's a question that uh, we're going to only learn more about as, as we move forward in time. I would say right at this moment, um, I think it's led to a rethinking of what the ingredients of those models should be, but it has not led to really a profound uh, um, um, paradigm shift that, of the kind we saw, say, in the 1970s right. when we moved from the Keynesian, uh, Keynesian model structure to more rational. I, I, I strongly support that idea, but if we are moving to a new mix within our models, what is that mix? Is it just assume that a Fed is always behind the data curve, always ex post? Yeah, no, I, I think it, at this stage, it, uh, um, the, I, I think academic thinking at least uh, remains still very uh, wedded to the, the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium uh, paradigm. What, what has happened is, that those models have been enriched by adding financial sectors. Uh, the, the financial sector was really very primitive in those models in, uh, say, 2007, 2000, before 2007 and 2008. That, the, the, that's been muscled up. But the basic structure, the basic way that those structures are uh, being used to approach the economy remains the same. For example, yesterday we saw the New York Fed come out with their DESGE-based forecast for inflation. Um, showing that their staff, which is you know one of the the, uh, the key ones in the system, is still still very much using these models. Well, let's put Tom's question and my question together, and it basically uh, means that um, we're trying to figure out the markets are trying to figure out the Fed's reaction function, and it sounds like the Fed's trying to figure it out as well at this point. Yeah, I think it's it's a uh, the. The, the issue is that the big puzzle for economists is 
how is it that rates are so low and inflation remains so low? And I, I think many people you listen to speak from the from the from the FOMC and uh, are conveying a sense of unease with, boy, how can rates be so low? And, and it's got to be lead to inflation soon, or our other problems uh, soon. And we don't see those other problems. Rates are low, inflation uh, remains low, and um, there's, I really don't see, think there's real uh, strong signs of financial instability of any kind. So it's, I, I think what you're hearing from the Fed is we've got to normalize rates because it, it cannot stay this way forever. But uh, what drives them to make those decisions over time, I think, remains quite quite murky. One of the uh, things that that does seem to at least have a possibility of being true is that by keeping rates so low for so long, it's pushed down the uh, expected return for companies uh, to for, uh, to invest, and and that's one reason that productivity has collapsed. I don't get uh, like to get your thought on that. Yeah. No. I. I... I guess I, I've heard this story, and I, but it doesn't really ring true to me. I, I, by keeping market rates low, you should be making investments more attractive. Um, the fact that investments, investment returns remain low um, is due to other factors. Uh, I, my own uh, uh, favorite factor in that is that the course of future demand for goods and services um, remains, I think, quite low for most companies. They don't see that demand being out there, and so they're not as willing to invest. But it, by, by keeping market rates low, you're making the, the, the return of, say, building a new factory, to use the classic count, uh, example from economics, you're making that return seem much more attractive because that's uh, driven by other uh, factors like the demand for uh, services and, and the cost of building that factory. Well, let's come back. Nariana Kachlakota with us from the University of Rochester, of course, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. We have too much to uh, talk about. Mike, we, you we need to, to get together to, for a Jenny Cream. We need to get – well, you, you wonder, has a good professor tried a Jenny Cream ale since he's gone to Rochester? We'll have to find that out here. There's other joys of the Genesee River. On the shores of the Genesee River that he can, uh, abide in while he's in Rochester. He can, he can enjoy the two seasons of Rochester, winter and the 4th of July. No one probably told him that when he traveled, uh, to Rochester. He's a man still, who grew up in Winnipeg. They're, they're still in, that's true. Rochester is like the beach. They're still in late, late winter in Rochester. All right. Now we'll come back with, uh, Professor Kacha Lakota. I want to talk to about negative interest rates and the distortion seen by Deutsche Bank today crying, really pushing back against the Moody's downgrade. Of course, Unicredit News and, uh, uh Francine Lacroix's interview with Barclays, Jess Staley as well. Let's check in with Michael Barr now and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. A state-run Middle East news agency now contradicts reports that human remains found at the crash site of Egypt Air Flight 804 suggests that there was an explosion on board that may have brought down the plane. The official told the Associated Press the logical explanation is that an explosion brought it down. The Airbus A320 was traveling from Paris to Cairo with 66 people on board when it went down in the Mediterranean. President Obama says upholding human rights is not a threat to government. In a speech in Hanoi today, he pressed Vietnam to allow greater freedoms for its citizens, calling it the foundation of progress. South Korea says more restaurant workers from North Korea have escaped from their state-run workplaces overseas and are headed to Seoul. 
Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike Tom. And Michael, thanks so much. We are connecting the dots with Mariana Kachalakota, an important interview with a professor from Rochester coming up. Kachalakota on the distortions, the joys of negative interest rates. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. This news update was brought to you by Bentley University. What do rebooting America's oldest ski shop and crunching numbers at Vistaprint have in common? An MBA from Bentley University that prepares graduates to innovate and lead. Because businesses everywhere prepare here. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And with the Bloomberg Business Flash, good morning, I'm John Tucker. Let's uh, head over to the Bloomberg First Word Breaking News Desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Morning, Bill. Good morning, John. U.S. futures are trading around their best levels right now. Dow futures currently higher by 90 points. Sesame's gain 11 and Nasdaq futures rise by 26. The U.S. 10 yield at 1.85%. And European markets rebounded from a weak open. Italy gains 1.9%. On the U.S. economic front at 10 o'clock, Richmond Fed and new home sales. And regarding earnings this morning, AutoZone Q3, PS, comp sales and revenue all missed estimates. Best Buy Q2 adjusted EPS view trailed estimates. And DSW cut its forecast. In other news, Moody's cut Deutsche Bank's rating to two levels above junk and Varian Medical to spin off its medical imaging unit. Finally, some of your key Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. CF Industries cut to underperform at Bank of America. Archer Daniels and Deere raised to outperform at BMO. Best Buy cut to neutral over at Citigroup. General Mills cut to sell at Goldman Sachs. And finally, Anthem cut to neutral over at Stern AG. Live from the first of breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. John? And we check the markets for you every 15 minutes during the trading day right here on Bloomberg Radio. And Bloomberg Surveillance continues now with uh, Tom Keenan, Mike McKee. Uh, John Tucker, thank you so much. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning brought to you by Invesco. Do the day's headlines have you searching for more investment views? Invesco's experts can help. Find out the latest thought leadership at the Invesco blog. Visit Invesco.com slash U.S. To subscribe, Michael McKee and I with uh, Nariana Kachalakota of Rochester, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. He has been very much in the news recently. Professor Tom Sargent owns the word robust. He's done a cottage industry of thinking about game theory, about how we think about what we think about in economics wrapped around this strange word of robust. He's done that with Lars Peter um, Hansen. Do we have a robust understanding and a robust knowledge of the robustness of negative interest rates? Do we have a clue what we're doing and what the ramifications are? Yeah, no, I think uh, uh, that's a great, great segue into talking about negative interest rates. Uh, now, I'll quickly mention that, uh, in fact, Lars uh, Hansen was my advisor, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying I to keep that. up with this work as best, best I can. Um, no, I... I think that uh, there's there's when you're ever thinking about problems or policy decisions from a robustness perspective, you're thinking about the the, the worst case scenarios. Uh, that's essentially what robustness drives you to do. Uh, is, is it's really a worst case scenario kind of analysis that that's, that you're being forced to do. Um, I think there you know we're, we're uh, there's worst case scenarios associated with going negative. There's worst-case scenarios associated with not going negative. And I, I think there's, when you hear the discussion about negative interest rates, there's a bias towards, 
well, maybe we should just stay at zero. Maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to push any further on this. That kind of an action, though, if you, uh, the countries that are gone negative are facing big costs, big worst cases associated with, with, uh, with inaction. And that's what drives them to take the step of, 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 of going negative. I think we're learning, absolutely learning about uh, negative interest rates. Myself, uh, my own takeaway from what we've seen so far is uh, banks don't like low interest rates. Uh, they don't like them. Uh, uh, they don't like 25 base. They like 50 basis points better than 25, and they like uh, zero better than minus 25. So I don't know if I've learned much more than that so far about uh, the dialogue on negative interest rates. But it, it always has to be kept in mind that inaction also has its own worst cases associated with it. Well, I guess that's the discretionary part of monetary policy for the policymakers to decide uh, where that risk line is, because when you look at the most recent iterations of quantitative easing and now uh, negative interest rates, we're not seeing inflation. Uh, And it appears to a lot of people that uh, the central banks uh, are running up against a liquidity constraint that uh, and it, it, it renders them powerless uh, to to do much more. I think there's a lot of tools left in the in the toolkit. Um, I you know my, my uh, former boss, <laughs> Mr. Bernanke, has written a very nice blog post. I think explaining how um, if, uh, the, the Fed and other central banks continue to have, I think, a lot of tools left. Um, I think that central banks are conveying, uh, unfortunately, are communicating a sense of powerlessness. And that feeds back on itself um, to to uh, generate uh, lower inflation expectations, lower inflation outcomes. Uh, but I, I think one of the challenges has been that the Fed and other central banks want inflation, but they don't want too much inflation. And it, I, I, in a, a post I wrote recently, I, I compared this to the idea that you want to throw your, your keys onto a table or a chair in front of you, but you never want the keys to go above the chair. Well, it's very hard then to get the keys on the chair if you never want to have it go above. Um, and that's what the game the central banks are trying to play is somehow get inflation back to target without it ever going above target. I think that's, right. that's proven very challenging. But to Stanley Fisher's speech the other day to Michael Woodford's legacy, he ended the speech by understanding that even with all we've got, we're in the search for economic growth. Does this monetary discussion have anything to do with getting the real economy back on track? You know, it has a little bit to do with it, but, you know, monetary policy cannot be – if if we have uh, persistently low growth, uh, persistently low productivity growth, for example – Monetary policy can't be the cure for that. With that said, um, you know, I, I, we're about 10% below, uh, or maybe a little more than that, below what we would expect it to be uh, uh, 10 years ago. So if you formed an expectation in 2006 of where we're going to be in 2016, we would be about 12% higher. I think at least some of that, um, maybe, maybe not, certainly not the full 12%, but maybe as much as half of it we could make up with through better monetary and fiscal policy. That's, you know, we shouldn't uh, sneeze at that by saying, oh, that's not long-term growth. That's something that's worth, uh, worth uh, pursuing. Ariana Coach at Lakota, um, you and Tom uh, got to get together for a Jenny Cream <laughs> at some point. <laughs> uh, Tom, t- Tom can uh, give you all the tourist highlights of Rochester. Yeah, Nick Tahoe's is national landmark. <laughs>
That's the hot dog place. Well, Professor Kachalakota, thank you so much. Congratulations on your appointment at the University of Rochester. Mike, that was fascinating. Oh, not, definitely not enough time. Yeah, not, we'll have to yeah, get him back on again. And, and he writes now for Bloomberg View, and we should mention yeah. View Go or Bloomberg View on the, uh, on the, on the internet. Yes. Uh, and check out his writings. And yeah, we did not ask him about the outlier dot. That would have been rude. And yeah, not, sure. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Futures up 11. Bloomberg surveillance. Coming up, though, with all due respect, highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com or call 1-800-FIND-4WD for details. Land Rover, above and beyond.